Well, there's an old Norwegian fishing tale about a son and his father who went out one morning. And as they were fishing, the fishing was so good that they continued to fish all day and into the evening. And they were following the fish farther and farther from shore. And as they were out quite some distance, suddenly a storm blew in. And as they turned back to land and tried to head back in, the storm began to rage and it tossed her boat to and fro and it was, it was being tossed and spun around everywhere and as nightfall fell, they, they lost track of which way the land was. And as they were being pushed farther and farther out to sea, they thought they didn't know which way to go. And the, the wife was up on their house, which was up on a high hill on this uh, seacoast, and she was looking out and as it turned to darkness and the storm was raging... She began to become very concerned, and she left her home in the midst of this torrential downpour and went down to the dock to wait for her husband and their son. And while she was there peering into the darkness and and praying for the safe return of, of her family, suddenly a lightning bolt struck the home that was high up on a hill. As it hit the house, the house caught fire and it began to burn. And the woman ran from the dock and up the hill to her home, and as she got there, All she could do was watch it burn to the ground. She then went back down to the dock, weeping, thinking she had lost her family. Her home was gone. And a a while later, her husband and son came to the dock. And she was ecstatic to see them. And, And yet, as they got off the boat, she shared the sad news that their home had burned to the ground. And she was surprised to see her husband smiling. And and she said, Why are you smiling? I just told you our whole house burned to the ground. And he explained to her that it was because the house had caught fire that he was able to see which way land was. As they were far out to sea, when they saw this fire burning in the distance, they realized that was the direction to go. Here was a family in the the midst of everything, a set of circumstances that looked like a tragedy at first, but it ultimately turned out for the good of this family. If, If the woman had not been worried about her husband and son lost at sea, she would have stayed safely, she thought, in the home. And when the lightning struck it, she probably would have been killed. And yet as she was down at the dock waiting for the return of her family, in the midst of this tragedy, it was the loss of their home that led the the husband and son back to shore. And if they hadn't been lost, the wife could have been lost. Here was a set of circumstances that in all accounts looked like a a terrible, devastating tragedy, and yet it worked out for good. I wonder if any of you have ever had something similar in your own life. Have you ever had a set of circumstances that appeared at first to be a terrible tragedy that ultimately was turned into some type of triumph? As you saw, the problems became progress through an issue, or it it resulted in, in something that changed your life or maybe even saved your life. Today, as we continue our series in the book of Philippians, turning to chapter 1, we're going to see how something similar happened with the Apostle Paul. Paul, in Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, will share how the prison that he was in and the problems that he was facing turned into a progress, an ultimate triumph for the gospel as it got out. I invite you to look with me at Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 21, tell us this. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. And to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel, 
The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but with all boldness Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain." Paul opens his section by telling us, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Now, as he writes this, we are given a glimpse as to some of the circumstances that are going on in Paul's life. He tells us there in verse 13, I'm in prison. He tells us that there are some who are seeking to hurt him. But if you've ever read through the scriptures and seen all that we know about Paul and the background behind this book, you know that he's only given us a tiny little glimpse. If you go back to find out what it was that caused Paul to be in prison in the first place, you'll recall that he was in Jerusalem. And he had entered the temple, and there was a group of Jews that that falsely accused him of bringing a Gentile into the temple. And these Jewish leaders got a crowd together and they went in and they were going to lynch Paul. They were beating him and dragging him out. The Romans who were in the fortress of Antonian that overlooked the temple could see this chaos in the temple courts. And they sent a group of soldiers into the crowd. And as they got to the middle of it, they found Paul being lynched. And they they secured Paul and they, they dragged him back to this fortress. And getting him into this fortress, they tried to figure out what's going on. Why, why are the Jews trying to kill you? Paul ended up, uh, some said he was this uh, guy stirring up trouble in Rome. There were the Jews making accusations. And the Romans just said, you know, we don't know what to do with you. And he ended up getting caught up in the court system. And as he went through step after step in the courts, he was there for many, many months. And, and things were dragging on. And they eventually said, we're going to transfer you, Paul, to a different area. And as he was going to this different area, there was a group of Jews who swore an oath that said, unless we uh, intercept this and kill Paul along the way, we're going, to, we're going to die trying. Now, that assassination plot failed. And Paul was then put on a ship, and he was taken to Rome. But as he was en route to Rome, things didn't get any better for Paul. The ship was shipwrecked. And Paul almost drowned along the way. And, and God spared him and those on the ship, and they made it to this little island. And as they were there trying to build a fire to warm themselves, having been you know, in the frigid waters, uh, a very poisonous viper came out of the wood and bit Paul. And everybody said, well, it's judgment. The guy escaped death at sea, but, you know, look. And they thought Paul would die, but again, God spared his life. He was there for three months on this island, shipwrecked. And eventually, he was put on another boat. He was taken to Rome to stand trial, where he was facing a death sentence. And as he awaited Caesar's ruling on him, they they moved him out of the prison into this house arrest situation. They didn't have electronic uh, bracelets back then like we do today, so they chained him to a Roman guard 24-7 around the clock. That's just a little bit of the background to Paul. Now, as you're listening to all that, if you were the person writing this letter to your friends and you were saying, hey, let me tell you a little bit about what's been going on in my life. If you were Facebooking somebody and you were putting all this out, how many pages would you spend delving into the details of your distress and having this pity party? 
saying, you would not believe how bad things have been. And yet as we read Paul, Paul doesn't go into all this detail. Instead, what he says is, I've got reasons to rejoice. You remember in a previous message where I said that suffering, pain is inevitable, but misery is an option? Pain is inevitable, but misery is an option. When hard things happen to you, how do you choose to respond? There's a man named Dr. David Soper, and he wrote a book called God is Inescapable. And in it, he observes that the difference between a prison and a monastery is the difference between griping and gratitude. The difference between a prison and a monastery is the difference between griping and gratitude. He said in prison, criminals spend every waking moment griping. Self-imprisoned saints spend every waking moment offering thanks. Super says that when a criminal becomes a saint, a prison may become a monastery. And when a saint gives up gratitude, a monastery may become a prison. As you look at your life, which one of these do you live in? You know, most of us here will never be Paul living in a prison cell. And yet as you look at your life today, many of us here are in a prison. There are plenty of prisons we can face. It can be a hospital bed or a chronic illness that you're battling. Other times it's not so drastic, but it can feel like you've lost your freedom as you're chained to a kitchen sink or an office desk, as your day is dirty diapers and other problems that you're facing. What is it that you're facing today? As problems just keep coming back, how do you respond? When we find ourselves in one of those places, it feels like a prison. We can languish there, or we can do as Paul did, and we can look for reasons to rejoice. When things happen to you, how do you look at them? When your car breaks down, do you look at that as, oh, great, just another problem with the old clunker, more cash that's going to go out the door? Or do you say, God, is this an opportunity to connect and share Christ with that mechanic? When you face a health scare, do you see it as an inconvenience or something to turn your world upside down? Or do you say, God, is this going to be something you're going to use to allow a medical staff to hear about you that maybe doesn't have that opportunity to know you? When somebody insults you or you're criticized, it becomes an opportunity to demonstrate love and grace as opposed to hate and retaliation. Now, I know... From personal experience, it's not always easy, is it? I'll confess to you, my first reaction isn't always, oh, praise God, this is a great opportunity to share Christ in this situation. Is that how you operate? I don't always operate that way. But what I've learned to do is to try to change my thinking. When when I face things in my life that are difficult, the the first reaction most of us have is we ask, why? Why, God, why is this happening to me? Why am I suffering once again? Why is this problem coming? I'm serving you. I'm doing all these things. Why? But instead, what I've learned to do is to change the question from why to what. Lord, what do you want me to learn from this? God, I thought I passed that class two times ago. Why have you re-enrolled me in this? I mean, what are you trying to teach me that I missed? Sometimes I ask, how? How, God, can this be used in my life or another person's life for your glory? 
When these things happen in your life, do you ask why? But if we learn instead to say what and how, what we find is our prisons may not change, but we will. Our prisons may not change, but we will. And like Paul, what we will find is we can have a bigger impact on our prisons than they can have on us. So the next time those things happen in your life, ask as Paul did, what are you going to do with this, God? How are you going to use this? Not why am I in this prison, but what are you going to do with it? Paul says here that these, these things in his life have turned out for the progress of the gospel. The, the Greek word that is used here, prokope, is a word that means progress in advance. It was an interesting word because it literally means a pioneer advance. And it was used of a group of army engineers, the people who would precede an army going into battle. Now, we've seen this like during Desert Storm and things where the army engineers went in with these tanks and other things that could dig up the mines and clear a path. But in, in Paul's day, there was, they didn't have that type of sophisticated equipment. Instead, what they had was like a, a group of army woodcutters because they would be trying to go through an impenetrable fortress. And this group of woodcutters would precede the army and they would clear a path through the trees. It was hard. It was dangerous work. There could be snipers and others that were trying to take them out as they were felling trees and clearing the road. But as they would clear a way through what had previously been an impenetrable forest, not only did the army benefit as they now had a direct route into wherever they were trying to go, but ultimately all the people of society would benefit as there were now new roads opened up, new paths that were cleared, mountain passes that were leveled and rocks removed so that people now had new ways to travel. And this is what Paul is talking about. As, as he views his circumstances, he says they've cleared the way for the greater progress of the gospel. He says we are able now to have Christ proclaimed in places he never was allowed to be proclaimed before. He, he says that the Praetorian Guard, the whole Praetorian Guard has heard the gospel. Who were the Praetorians? These were the elite soldiers who guarded Caesar. It was a group of 9,000 crack troops And they were the ones that guarded the emperor, that protected the palace, that were over all the high places. They were in all the the highest government buildings and, and other things. These were the soldiers who had immediate influence, who would rub shoulders with all the high up officials. And so what Paul says is, I've been put in prison and God has removed me out of this dungeon like cell into a house arrest situation. And he says, and because I have to be guarded, there is a soldier who comes in, and these guys would be on a six-hour rotating shift. So every six hours, a new soldier would come in, and he would chain himself, shackle himself to Paul. Now, if you were Paul, and you're sitting there, and there's a new guy chained to your wrist, you know, he's probably about 18, 24 inches away on a chain. Your entire 24-7, there's a guy sitting there with you. Would you go, oh, great. This person's interrupting my life. He's here. Or would you look as Paul did and say, praise God for a captive audience. (laughs) Thank you, God, that every day you've given me four new opportunities to share Christ. Every day there is a new soldier who comes in for six hours, gets locked up to Paul and sits there. And as we read through the scriptures, we find what Paul was doing during this two-year imprisonment. The book of Acts tells us he was there under house arrest for two full years. 
And God used him to write four of the New Testament epistles. One of those we're reading here, Philippians. And so as Paul is writing these letters, he had some kind of ailment. They think some, what maybe his eyesight was affected. He would dictate the letters. So if you're the Roman soldier, you're literally there hearing the word of God as Paul is dictating these letters. You're seeing Paul as he's meeting with Christian leaders. They're coming and going. Paul is praying with them. He's encouraging them. They're having times of worship and singing songs. Imagine being that soldier sitting there for six hours, holding church for six hours. And this is happening day after day. Well, if you multiply four guys over three years, that's about 3,000 soldiers that Paul has the opportunity to impact. Now, as you look at the scripture, it says the whole Praetorian Guard has heard this. Paul's only reached about a third of them, which means there's another uh, group. These guys who are hearing this, many of them are coming to faith in Christ. Or when they go back to the palace and the senators or even the emperor and and, and the other soldiers are saying, man, what is going on over there with Paul? Man, let me tell you about this guy. You know, you and I, we'd be having a pity party. We'd be lamenting our sake. But this guy, he's praising God. He's singing. He's saying these things. They're taking what they're hearing at Paul's side back to the barracks. They're taking it with them to work in the halls. We read that it's it's being shared not only among the servants and and the higher-ups within the palace, but it's even getting out onto the streets. Friends, let me ask you a question. If somebody were chained to you 24 hours a day, what would they see? Would they see something like Paul? Would they hear you singing praises? Would they see you praying? Would they see you in God's Word? Would they hear you encouraging others? Or would they hear more complaining than they heard about Christ? This is Paul. Paul's in the midst of a horrible set of circumstances. He's gone through all this background that I just shared with you. And Paul's perspective is, thank God for the pioneer advance. Thank God for the opportunity for the gospel to be getting out. He says it's, it's out among the whole guard. So others are multiplying what they're hearing. They're seeing Paul, and they're sharing it with others. What's keeping us from being like Paul? How many of us are are afraid to be a bold witness like Paul? You know, I hear people sometimes tell me, well, Roger, I I don't share my faith because I'm going to mess it up so bad, the person will never come to Christ. And and I always say tongue-in-cheek to this person, you know, you're really not that good. The Bible is clear that it is God who draws all men to himself. Do you really think you're bigger than God? That you can keep somebody from coming to Christ? Now, certainly our life and our lips and what we do can hinder the gospel. We talked last time about hypocrisy, and we talked about the importance of being filled to the brim with him, so that's what overflows in our life. Do you remember that? But if you're looking at your life and you're saying, that's why I don't share, um, I think you're giving yourself too much credit. I think really the the thing that most people are saying to me is, Roger, I really don't know how to share my faith. And if if that's the case with you, we can help you. We can help you here at Wayside Chapel. You can repeat what you hear in the sermons. People sometimes come to me and they say, Roger, we know you love the Romans Road. We hear it so many Sundays. Somebody's nicknamed it the Rogers Road. You know, you start out in Romans 310 or 323, we're all sinners. 
And then we go to 623, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And then I mentioned Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's coming back, isn't it? You get to Romans 10, 8, and 9, and it says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. Do you know why I do that? Not only do I believe it's one of the most effective ways to share the good news of the gospel, but I purposely do it so that you learn it. Whether you know it or not, you know how to share the gospel when you go out. And so here at Wayside, when you sit in on a message, you're learning how to share the gospel, and you can go and do it. Now, maybe you're saying, Roger, I can't remember all those verses. Can you remember one verse? John three sixteen. That's right, I hear it being said. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. If you know just that one verse, you are capable of sharing the good news. Do you know that? I can get on an elevator and share the gospel before the person gets off three floors up. And what I do is I get on the elevator and I, I step on and, and, you know, I'll be in the hospital visiting. They see me with my Bible. People are always, you know, chaplain. Well, yeah, I'm a pastor. And I'll say, you know, uh, I was reading in the Bible today and I read about you. Now, if I tell you that, if I say I read about you in the Bible today, what's your immediate thought? <laughs> what did it say, right? <laughs> I get people, they go, Devadis, really? And I say, yeah. Well, what did it say? Well, it said for God, I'll, I'll ask them, what's your name? And they'll say, I'm Larry, I'm Jose, I'm Mary. And, and I'll go, Jose, you know what it said about you? It said, for God so loved Jose that he gave his only begotten son that if Jose will believe in Jesus Christ, Jose will not perish but have eternal life. Is that really in there? Yeah. Let me show you. Oh, dang, it's your floor. Can I step off with you for a moment? And I open it to John three sixteen. I said, would you like to re- read this verse? For God so loved the world. I'll say, stop right there. The world. You live in the world, don't you? So God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son. Who is that? That's Jesus Christ. That whoever, so, whoever will believe in him, I'll say, that's you. Have you ever believed in Jesus? And then I'll tell them, you can have the gift of new life. And people will go, Wow. I don't lead everybody to the Lord, but I have people who say, I need that right now. And you'll pray with them. It's not just in hospitals. It's in, it's in parking garages. It's in business places. It's around campus. Can you do that? Can you just say to somebody Monday morning, hey, I read about you in the Bible today. Really? What did it say? Well, let me show you. If you don't know how to share your faith, we want to help you grow in your ability to share your faith. It's here in Sunday morning sermons. It's in our adult Bible fellowships. It's through special classes that we have here. It's through small groups. Most of us know how to share our faith. We're just afraid. There are no shortage of opportunities in any of our lives. And if you feel that there are, then just pray. Ask God each and every day, God, would you give me just one person today to share the good news with? And God, would you be at work in their heart? Would you prepare them to be ready to receive the good news? Now, as Paul talks about the gospel being shared, notice that he says not everybody's out there doing it for the right reasons. Look at verses 15 and 18. He says, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but also some from goodwill. 
The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Paul says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. You know what I hear so often? It's other Christians criticizing other Christians. People come to me and they go, Roger, do you know what such and such church is doing around town? You know, it's sermon light over there, or they're just preaching this or that. Or, and you know what I always do is I stop that conversation. And I just say to the individual, I say, you know what? Praise God that Christ is being talked about. Now, if it's not a Bible-believing church, if it's a cultic church, if it's the Mormons who use the same words but don't have the same Savior, Jesus Christ, I don't celebrate that. But if it's another church in town that is a true Christian church teaching God's word, what I say to the person is, you know what? They don't do it our way, but they're reaching people that we're not reaching here at Wayside, and we should celebrate that. You know, as you look at what Paul's saying here, he says, not everybody does it my way. And he says, not everybody's even doing it with my motives. He says, these people are sharing in order to hurt me. And Paul could have got in a mudslinging fight and the message would have got buried as people started warring with each other. But he says, you know what? The main thing is the main thing. I rejoice that Christ is being proclaimed, that the truth is getting out. Friends, whether you realize it or not, men in ministry can suffer from ego and pride problems just like everybody else. And what's happening here is Paul was a big name in his day. Everywhere he went, crowds were attracted. People wanted to hear Paul. And some of these other men in ministry were saying, everybody's going to see Paul, but hey, Paul's now in jail. People can't come to see him, can't come to hear him. So they said, let's grab market share. Paul can't compete. He's locked away. It's limited access. So let's get out there and, and grab the crowds that used to go to Paul. Let's, let's start sharing the good news. And, and what Paul says here in verse 17 is they're guilty of selfish ambition. The word used here means a self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. Nothing's new. What he says is they're campaigning for themselves, not Christ. They're seeking to build up their name, not the kingdom of God. But what Paul says is, you know what? I don't care because the name of Christ is getting out and the, the, the life-changing message is being heard. People are coming to know and love and live for Christ. Now, his critics thought Paul's going to be sitting in prison hearing about these, these growth in these areas of these other men's ministry and he's going to be eaten up with envy like they were. And Paul says, praise God. I'm glad to hear that that... that that church is growing. I'm glad to hear that that guy is having that impact. And you know, it should be the same for us here in San Antonio and in Castle Hills. When I pass other churches around town, I try to pray for those churches. When I come into Sunday morning worship and I drive past First Baptist Castle Hills, what I do is I, I pray coming in, Lord, would you make this a great morning at Castle Hills? Would you, would you bless Pastor James Shoup? Would, would you help them to impact the people of this city, Castle Hills, where we are? When I turn in the parking lot, I pray for Dan Milford across the street at Covenant Presbyterian. And I say, Lord, would you fill their parking lot, not with our people parking over there who walk over, <laughs> but would you fill their parking lot? 
And would you help them to reach a part of our city? When I, when I drive the outside loop, I, I pray for, for Robert Emmett up there at Community Bible Church. And I say, God, thank you for what you're doing. I pray for, as I pass Crown Ridge where Oak Hills is, for Max Licato and Randy Frazee, I pray, God, would you multiply their ministry? When I'm out in the far reaches by Converse, I pray for Rander Draper at Maranatha. When I'm over by Grace Point, I pray for Jeff Harris. As you pass these churches, do you praise God that we have partners in the city that are reaching the community for Christ? Do you ask God to fill their pews and their parking lots? Friends, there are enough unsaved people in this city to fill every one of our churches over and over We don't have to steal market share and transfer the sheep around. I love the fact that we have partners that are in the city. And this is what Paul is saying. Paul says, rather than fighting with one another, let's fight for the gospel. In verse 16, he says, I was appointed for the defense of the gospel. The word here, the Greek word is apologia. Have you ever heard the word apologetics? This is where we get it. The word apologetics means to contend for, to fight for. It describes a systematic argumentative discourse in defense of a doctrine. Paul's not fighting about methods. He's fighting about the message. Is the way of salvation being proclaimed that it's Jesus Christ alone? That's what's important. You know, kids like to joke with one another, I'd I'd get in a battle with you, but I I don't want to fight an unarmed man. A battle of wits, right? Right? How many of us sometimes look at somebody and we say, you know, I don't want to go into battle because I'm unarmed. I really don't know how to defend my faith. 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us to be diligent, to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. This is where we get the Awana program, where the kids are memorizing scripture. A workman not ashamed is what Awana is talking about. And as you look at these little kids who can memorize verses, how many of us as adults are memorizing God's word so we're prepared? Now, in order to be able to accurately handle the word of God, you need to be handling it on a regular basis. Spend time in it, reading it, memorizing it, knowing where, where the books of the Bible are. If you use your iPhone or iPad or something like that, that's fine. But are you in it daily? You know, right now it's spring training camp for many of the college campuses. And you see these scrimmages and you see the the two-a-days taking place and all the training. Why are the players working so hard right now? Because they know that there is a day coming when the regular season happens and the stadiums will be full of people. And when those players take the field, they don't want to be embarrassed. They want to be ready. They want to have their skills down. They're working on the basics all the way up to trick plays. And what they're saying is we need to practice now. We need to hone our skills. So when the actual game occurs, we're ready to come in off the bench and into the game and make an impact. How many of us realize that maybe we're not in the game we think right now, but when you walk out of the doors of Wayside Chapel, may I remind you, friends, that you're walking into the game? that you're going to be going out into the world where there are going to be people who are attacking your faith, others who want to know about your faith, honest questions. And how many of us are prepared? How many of us are ready to give a defense? Could you be called in off the bench and join the defensive line? Are you ready? That's what Paul's telling us here. 
It says in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word in season and out of season. Now, as I, re- as I say that, remember what we talked about last week, using wisdom and discernment. I'm not telling you that you should be a, a one-trick pony, so to speak, and, and whenever somebody sees you coming, they want to run because they go, oh, here comes Roger. You're going to hit me with the Bible again, right? There was a team of junior high boys, and they were playing baseball. And they were in the dugout, and the, the game wasn't going very well. They were losing, and so the boys kind of quickly lost interest, and they were chattering among, and there was an assistant coach by the name of Richie. And he had a younger sister who was about the age of most of these boys, and she was a very pretty young lady. And so all the boys were asking about his sister. Hey, Richie, what about, what, you know? And the coach was so mad. The head coach said, look, when you're in the dugout, you only talk baseball. I don't want to hear all this idle chatter about Richie's sister, baseball. If you don't have anything to say about baseball, don't say it. So there's kind of silence. And then one of the little boys sitting on the end of the bench said, Hey, Richie, does your sister play baseball? (laughs) You know, as we talked about last week, what should overflow from our life is that, that knowledge of who God is. And if we're filling ourselves up with him, that's what's naturally going to come out. Again, it doesn't have to be in a way that people just see you as a holy roller. It should just be a part of your life that permeates your whole, whole person and your conversations. As you look at your life today, are you ready to get in the game? If you need a little more time in training camp, if you need to hone your skills, keep doing what you're doing. Read his word. Listen to the messages. Go to ABFs where there are great teachers teaching. Get in a small group where they can help you. Sign up for one of the the classes that we periodically have in helping you to know how to defend your faith through apologetics or other ways. Paul says he was able to share his faith not only because he was filled with God, but he says here that this knowledge of God strengthened his faith. So when the tough times came, he was able to stand firm. One of the secrets to that, he says in verse 19 is, for I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul says, I'm not in the game alone. You guys are helping me. You're you're sending financial uh, support for me so I can maintain a house to be in a house arrest situation rather than a dungeon. We talked about Epaphroditus, a friend that was sent to minister to him. As he says that, he, he says provision here, it goes beyond the money he gives that they gave. The word literally is a medical term. It describes the ligaments that support a body. Now, most of us here uh, don't even think about ligaments, do we, unless you're in the medical profession. We don't think about it until we hurt them. When I was in college, I I blew out all the ligaments in my left ankle, and that was the end of the basketball career I was never going to have anyway. (laughs) But suddenly when I tore up those ligaments, it it became the full focus of my life, and I I began to realize how important they were. And, And what Paul's saying here is there are parts of the body of Christ that we don't even think about, but they are so important. The people who give to Wayside Chapel to allow the ministry to go on. They're part of this provision, part of this support. The prayers. We've talked many times about the fact that if there's no prayer in the pews, there's no power in the pulpit. Prayer is what makes our ministry go. It's how we tap into God. And what Paul says is, you are are those who are providing for me. 
And we need you to be those hidden supports to the ministry of Wayside. Now, if you're having trouble remembering to pray for the leaders of Wayside, let me give you a bit of trivia that may help. Um, My wife said, this is kind of creepy. Don't share that, but I'm going to anyway. So (laughs) if you look at my last name, Poupart, in a medical dictionary, whether you know it or not, you have a Poupart ligament in your body. Did you know that? I see some of the doctors, yeah, yeah, I had a trick question in medical school on that, right? It's, it's the inguinal ligament that is in your body. And so when you leave here, remember, wherever you go, I go with you. <laughs> well, no, I'm not always with you, but you have something better than the poop heart ligament. In Matthew 28, it tells us this in verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Friends, do you realize that God is with you when you are here and when you walk out of the doors of Wayside? Do you realize that you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit? 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, And do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord and that the Spirit of God dwells within you? We have God's power and presence resident within us, that unseen help. And Paul was one who was able to tap into it, which is why he could accomplish the work God had called him to do and why he says in verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. When he says his earnest expectation, the word literally means to strain your neck, peering to see what is ahead. The picture here is of Paul on his tippy toes, peering ahead to say, what's going to happen? What is God doing? Right now I'm in this prison, but I'm looking ahead. Paul, somewhere else in the scripture said, I forget what lies behind and I press on to the goal. Paul was one who was always looking forward, saying, let's forget the hard things. And let's say, how or what is God going to do with this to be used in the future? As Paul contemplated what was ahead, he knew one day there would be death. Some people dread that. But Paul says here, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Paul knew that for those who believe in Jesus Christ, death is not the end of our life. Friends, that is just the beginning. When we die, we are more alive than ever before. And Paul said, I'm looking forward to that day. Which is why he could say in verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The Living Bible translation paraphrases this as, For to me living means opportunities for Christ, and dying, well, that's better yet. Paul had that perspective. And if we have that perspective, for those of us who know Jesus Christ, we will realize that the whole reason we are here is to know him and make him known. And if we're spending our life like that, we can, we can be like Paul. If we live like that, when we go home to glory, when we walk through the gates of heaven, not only do we get the joy of seeing Jesus Christ, but we'll also have the, the added joy of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And we'll receive heavenly rewards for how we've lived our life. That's a secondary issue. But as we walk through the gates of heaven... What will God say to you? Will he look at you and say, you lived your life for me? 
Can you say as Paul did, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, sadly, not everybody lives his or her life this way. Chuck Swindoll has, has said this about how many of us have rewritten this verse. As I share some of these, ask yourself if this describes you. For me to live is money. And to die is to leave it all behind. Is that the pursuit of your life? For me to live is fame. And to die is to be quickly forgotten. For me to live is power and influence. And to die is to lose both. For me to live is possessions. And to die is to depart with nothing in my hands. Friends, what are you living your life for? If you were to take what Paul says here and you were to write the verse that describes your life, for me to live is what? And therefore to die equals what? Swindoll says when money is our object, we must live in fear of losing it, which makes us paranoid and suspicious. When fame is our aim, we become competitive, lest others upstage us, which makes us envious. When power and influence drives us, we become self-serving and strong-willed, which makes us arrogant. And when possessions become our God, we become materialistic, and enough is never enough, which makes us greedy. All of these pursuits fly in the face of contentment and joy. Only Jesus Christ can truly satisfy our desires in us. When we accept Jesus as our Savior and make him the center of our life, whether we have or don't have, whether we are known or unknown, even whether we live or die, doesn't matter. And the good news is, death only sweetens the pie. Friends, if you've never filled in the blank, for me to live is Jesus Christ, I invite you today to do so. To say, I'm coming to the cross I'm dying to myself today. Jesus, I want to live for you. I want my life to count for all eternity. And if we're able to do that, then we can say as Paul did, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that you were willing to leave your throne in heaven to leave behind all the things that so many people seek, glory and honor and a place of power and prominence, to take our place, to go to the cross and give your life, dying horrible deaths so that we could have the new gift of life, eternal life, that comes through your sacrifice. Lord Jesus, I pray if there's anyone here today that has not yet come to know you, that this would be the day where they say, for to me to live is Jesus Christ. I'm leaving my old way of life behind, and I'm turning to you, and I want to be yours. And God, for the rest of us who have taken that step before, would you help us to indeed be able to say, for me to live is Christ. I may not be perfect, but I want him to be the center of my life. And if we possess that perspective, as Paul did, we also will be able to say, even if death comes, even when we leave this life, it will be gain. Because we'll gain a better home, we'll gain a better future, and we'll get to be with you for all eternity. So Lord Jesus, help us to turn to you and live for you. We pray this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.